1 John 2, 18 through 27. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. So excited to, uh, to be up here with you hanging this morning. It has been uh, such an incredible privilege getting to become a part of this community. We've been so welcomed and um, been a few short months, but honestly feels like family. I'm very excited and uh, very excited to see this sun that everybody keeps talking about because uh, over the last few months, uh, we felt like we moved to Seattle and not San Diego. So, uh, but very excited to be here with you and uh, yeah, excited for this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we do just uh, commit ourselves to you this morning. We in, invite you into this space. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and um, God, that we, as we just submit ourselves under the scriptures here today, God, we pray that you would encourage and, and sharpen and challenge, convict um, Lord, if, if that's what we need, and God, even just pray for the ability to preach and teach in a way that's going to honor you and honor the scriptures, and commit our time to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, before my wife, Jade, and I moved here in November of last year, we were actually living in Anaheim, uh, California. We were serving on uh, staff at a small church revitalization and uh, was finishing up my uh, first master's at uh, Western Seminary, and was, we were preparing to church plant. That was uh, kind of just the season that we were in. And while I was an online student at a seminary that was nearly a thousand miles away in Portland, Oregon, I actually had the opportunity to hang out in the library like a lot at Biola. Any Biola students up in here? Maybe? No? It's all good. I got to play Biola student. It was cool. Um, Western and Biola have like a reciprocity agreement. So even though I wasn't a student there, I got full access to their theological library. And so I was able to spend uh, two full semesters just hanging out in the books there, uh, studying like New Testament Greek. I got to write 
papers on preaching. I got to write papers on church history. Got to do a bunch of projects on like societal and cultural issues that are uh, facing the church today. And just, yeah, cranked out on this degree that I was working on. And, and really, I spent those semesters, as I was reflecting upon it, I, was, I spent those semesters actually like producing work for an imagined community of believers, Right? They're, these were people who had no names. These were people who had no faces. Their backstories, the woes that plagued them were simple amalgamations of the people that I had ministered to in nearly a decade of pastoring. You see, but the, the text that we're in today is the exact opposite of this context. John the Apostle did not write this text for an abstract community that he imagined. He was writing to a literal church who were quite literally in the throes of fighting the battle to remain faithful to Jesus. He was writing to people whose names he knew, whose faces he knew, and whose stories he knew. And this is such an important reality for us to like keep in our minds as we read this text. I think it's really important for the whole of the letter, but it is mostly, mainly important for this text right here because there's some things that it's easy to misunderstand and get skewed off and miss John's main point here. All right, as our text indicates, John was writing to a community of believers that was in danger of being swayed in their beliefs about Jesus. These individuals, from what it appears, were a part of the church and they had once confessed faith in Jesus but had since become convinced that this community was no longer founded upon the truth. They had actually become convinced that Jesus was not the Messiah, and they had now taken it upon themselves to infiltrate the church and to try and convince those in the church of their spurious and heretical doctrine that Jesus was not the Messiah. And it is to this issue that John has addressed this letter. John does two things in this text. How many things? Too. Also, I was a high school pastor for like six years, and so I just require a lot of uh, interaction because when high school kids go silent, you're pretty sure they're like planning a mutiny in your demise. Okay, so just to get that out there. Okay, so John warns his readers. That's what he, he does here. He warns, and then he arms. What does he do first? He warns, and then he arms, right? He first identifies the danger that this community faces in verses 18 through 23, and then he instructs them on how to overcome the danger in verses 24 through 27, right? He warns, he arms, he identifies, he instructs. John is writing to this community because they are dangerously close to stepping into and stepping to the precipice of having heretical ideas about Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, do not let this infiltrate your ranks. His concern is for this local church and his purpose for writing is to ensure that they're not deceived. And so to accomplish this, John does four things, right? He provides a fourfold instruction to this church. He calls them to, number one, to recognize. Then he calls them to remember and he calls them to realize, and then he calls them to remain. Say those with me, all right? Number one, calls them to recognize. Number two, to remember. Number three, to realize. And number four, to remain. This is one of the things they teach you at pastor schools, alliteration. It feels very good when it works, right? You're not as impressed as I thought. It's fine. It's fine. By this fourfold instruction... The aged Apostle John calls this church to stay faithful to and to stand firm upon their confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And as we set today's text 
into the larger context of John's first letter, we see that he's not only interested in the formation of a community that holds right beliefs about Jesus, he's also concerned about the type of community that is flourishing and growing in conformity to the way of Jesus, right? So it's, it's right beliefs about Jesus, but it's also a community that is being formed into the way of Jesus. He is concerned with doctrine and theology, but he's also concerned with the way beliefs impact community formation and mission. And this is his overall emphasis in writing to this first century church in ancient Asia Minor. He is looking to form a community of love, and that's what we're stepping into, right, as a church community this summer. So during the remainder of our time together, I wanna endeavor to unpack these four things that we talked about. Right, the call to recognize and to remember and to realize and to remain. And I wanna see what John tells this ancient church because I believe that's through the Spirit's power at work in us that this vision can also become our reality as followers of Jesus in modern day San Diego. All right, so that's the, the trajectory that we're gonna head on today. If you're down, Sam, down. Okay, if your neighbor didn't say anything, look at him and just be like, what's up, what are you doing here? Nah, I'm just kidding. Now, in these four things, the first two are gonna take some setup, just a word of note, all right? It's gonna take some setup, it's gonna take some time to develop, and the second two are gonna flow directly out of them. All right, so the first word that encompasses St. John's fourfold command to this church, do you remember what it was? Recognize, right? This word recognize. Look at verses 21 through 22 with me. John writes this to the church. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever, what's the word? Denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person, John says, is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. This call from John to recognize spurious and illegitimate claims about Jesus as the Messiah is the driving force of this entire text. It's the, the undercurrent here of what is driving John forward, again, because he wants this community to not be infiltrated by these heretical ideas. And so the most prominent call in this text is to recognize the deception to place hope in false messiahs. And this is something that for us we need to spend some time talking about this morning. This was crucial for John's original readers and it's vital for us as well. You see, the reality facing the church in our cultural moment and in, in, in modern day America is not a wholesale rejection of Jesus as was the case for John's initial audience. You see, for us, large swaths of the church actually hold orthodox beliefs about Jesus and his divinity and his atoning work on the cross, but there are many who functionally de-messiahize Jesus by simply thinking that he came to die for the sins of the world. For these Christians, the good news of Jesus begins and stops with the forgiveness of sins and the escaping of hell upon death. And this is functionally de-messiahizing Jesus. See, a decade now of preaching in the church and two years of teaching biblical studies at the undergraduate level, they have convinced me that many in the church have an innate misunderstanding of the term Christ and the term Messiah. 
Right? Christ is the, the transliteration of the Greek word Christos. Messiah is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach. These are titles. They are not names. They designate the one who would be anointed by God to restore his rule and his reign over the world. This is a clear theme that drives the entirety of the Bible's narrative forward from Genesis to Revelation. You see, in the early pages of Genesis, they describe the presence of this mysterious talking serpent who actually coerces and and deceives the, the first humans into doubting God's goodness, and they disobey him. In response to this, God promises that a, a, a seed is going to come, an offspring is going to come from the woman who is going to crush the serpent's head, but this seed will also suffer a fatal wound from the serpent. The story of Genesis traces down to Abraham, the first Israelite, and we're told that this promised serpent-crushing offspring of the woman is going to come from Abraham. The story continues in Genesis until Judah Abraham's grandson, who's the namesake of the tribe of Judah. The story in the Old Testament continues to King David, right? We've heard of King David before. King from the tribe of Judah. And we're told that this serpent crusher is going to come from Judah, who's going to be this messianic king, who's going to restore God's reign upon the earth. The prophets later at the end of the Old Testament, right? They're writing in a time where Israel has been carried out of the land because of unfaithfulness and disloyalty, and yet their hope is still in this serpent-crushing, messianic king from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, the seed of the woman. In the beginning of the New Testament, chronicles the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth on the scene as Israel's long-expected Messiah. He announces the arrival of the kingdom of God in himself and challenges the power of the serpent. And ultimately on the cross, Jesus succumbs to the fatal wounds from the serpent, but then overcomes the power of the serpent through his resurrection from the dead. This is, this is the story of the scriptures. And now as the people of God, we live under the rule and the reign of a crucified and ascended king who has crushed the head of the serpent and has given us the power through the spirit of God to resist the influence of the serpent and truly live life today in the kingdom of God. This is the gospel This is the story of the scriptures. Yes, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Like, thank Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But that is only a part of the good news. For once your sins are forgiven, the reality is is that you are now brought into the kingdom of God and you are empowered by the Spirit to live a faithful and God-honoring life in the midst of that kingdom. More on that in a few moments. Jesus Christ, say that with me, Jesus Christ, this is a title, not a name, sidebar, one of my favorite things to do, surf, snowboard, I climb, I have a lot of friends who do not follow Jesus, and they love this phrase, you know what I'm talking about, (laughs) they love this phrase, okay, they say it with a lot of authority and a lot of passion, and it's usually to kind of get across some kind of frustration and anger, you know what I'm talking about, you got friends like that? I love it. It's one of my favorite things. And before you gasp and think I'm a heretic, here's why. Because I always say amen. 
Because what they're claiming is that Jesus is the long-awaited, serpent-crushing seed of the woman who died on the cross and is returning again to bring the kingdom of God and restore all things. Amen. And you're saying it as a cuss word. What's up? One of my favorite things. Jesus Christ is a title. It is not a name. Since the Garden of Eden, every iteration of human civilization has fallen into the deception of the serpent. Every iteration of civilization has sought to rule over creation by their own definition of good and evil. Exactly what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve into. The only hope for this world which has been ravaged by the presence of sin and the power of spiritual evil is the coming kingdom of God. This is what Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah secured through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Jesus inaugurated this kingdom and now reigns from his heavenly throne at the right hand of his Father in heaven. You and I, in the midst of this, now we live in pretty interesting times in the American church, right? There's so much tension that we find ourselves in. There's issues of politics, there's issues of race, issues of justice, issues even now about things like technology, right? Artificial intelligence, I'm a, I'm a professor at a Bible college and we're already having issues with kids turning in papers about the Bible written with artificial intelligence. It's a crazy time that we live in. There is so much tension that we find ourselves in. And in the midst of this rising cultural anxiety, it seems that many in the church have synchronized their hope for our nation and culture with the seizing of political power as the means of winning this culture war. For many, this or that political leader is their functional Messiah. Again, because remember, in the church, many have de-Messiahized Jesus. And so for some, they see America as the kingdom of God, and they place their hope in a Christian leader being voted into the White House who is going to restore the moral framework of our nation and lead us back into the will of God. For others, the only hope for this nation is completely tearing down the oppressive systems of power that have trampled upon the marginalized and the oppressed and the most vulnerable among us. And still others See this world as too far gone. It's going to hell anyway. So our hope is to be taken out of here to another world. Let the world burn. These thoughts are pervasive within the spectrum of Christian thought in our culture. Once again, the reality that the church in our cultural moment faces is not a wholesale rejection of Jesus. No, that was the case for John. But in our day, the sinister deception that is facing the church is widespread idea that Jesus is only concerned with spiritual matters like sin and eternity in heaven. That is the deception that our church faces today in our nation. Many have, in effect, demessiahized Jesus and have put their hope in what John refers to as Antichrist. Listen, if this is you, no condemnation, but listen, you have grossly misunderstood Jesus and the mission that he came to the earth to accomplish. The story of the scriptures directly contradicts a Jesus that is only concerned with spiritual matters like sin and the afterlife. The Bible invites us to see the creator God who stepped into the brokenness of his world to confront that brokenness and ultimately take its power upon himself to overcome it. 
by resurrecting from the grave. Jesus not only came to die for the sins of the world, but also to bring the kingdom of God into the world. This is so absolutely vital for us. Recognize the deception to place hope in false messiahs. That's what John is calling this church to do. John is saying, hey, there's brokenness that you're seeing. Remember that your ultimate hope is not in a political leader. It's not in one of these antichrists who promised to do for the world what only King Jesus can do. He's saying, make sure your hope is in the true Messiah. One of the main ways that we do this, according to John, is number two, to remember our place in God's story. Say that one with me. Remember, all right? That was, I was unclear of whether you're supposed to say the whole thing. It's fine. It's fine. We're just going to move past it. Recognize and remember, John tells us. As we saw in the outline, all right, of this, this serpent, serpent crusher theme, as we kind of traced that biblical theology narrative through the Old Testament, right, we see that God is, again, wholly and completely concerned with redeeming and restoring both humans and his good creation. It's both. Right, And I intentionally left that story hanging, and so we need to come and talk about how the story of the scriptures end. You see, the church, you and I, the new covenant people of God, for the last 2,000 years, we have lived in a time where Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, took place on the cross. We live in a time where Jesus sits enthroned as king of the world at the right hand of God. However, the story of the Bible ends by telling us in Revelation 20 through 22 that Satan, this serpent with a crushed head, is actually cast into the lake of fire and heaven returns to the earth where Jesus establishes his throne and makes all things new. This is the Bible's view of what we refer to as heaven. It is a renewed physical creation where Jesus reigns upon the earth for all of eternity in the presence of sin and spiritual evil and death and wickedness have no place. It's paradise. It is a new garden of Eden. This is where the story of the scriptures ends. And so for the call for the church, for us, is to live in this time of tension, Again, theologians refer to this, this time of tension. It's called the already and the not yet. Will you say that one with me? Already, not yet. This is a time where Jesus is already king, but is not yet reigning upon the earth. This is a time where Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent, but has not yet fully rid the world of the serpent's presence and power. Are you with me? This is the time and the tension that we find ourselves in here as the church. The timing of this coming kingdom, the timing of the end of the story of the Bible, the end in Revelation 20, 22, is what John is speaking to in the opening lines of this text. Look at verse 18 with me. Dear children, John says, this is the last, what church? Hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, John says, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last, what? Hour. Depending on your exposure to different church tribes and different flavors of Christianity, when we read this text earlier and when we read it right now, there might be like some anxiety welling up inside of you. 
right? Maybe your mind is like fraught with images right now of planes falling out of the sky and piles of clothes left upon the sidewalk as thousands and really millions of people are taken up into the cloud and the world is just given over to its imminent destruction. You're like, Kirk Cameron, are you here? What's going on? You know what I mean? Okay, you with me? For those of you who did not grow up in the church, count yourself lucky. (laughs) So like we hear these terms, it's the last hour, you're like, oh my gosh, there's a prophetic timeline, right? Start thinking of what's happening in Israel, there's all this stuff. You hear Antichrist and you're like, oh my gosh, right? It's anxiety welling up inside of us, but the reality here is John is not concerned with planes falling out of the sky people's clothes being left as they're taken up into the clouds. It's not what John is concerned about here at all. You see, he is speaking to this tension that the church finds themselves in, this tension of the already and the not yet. John is calling the church to remember their place in God's story by referencing the end of this story. The church, we are called to hope in this future day when Jesus returns. It is the last hour, church. Jesus is coming quickly, amen? John believed that in the first century, and we need to believe that here in the 21st. But they're also called by the Apostle John to live life as if that kingdom reality has already come to bear upon the world. As the church, we are called, right, as John's original audience was, to be the embodiment of the hope that is found in Jesus' coming in the face of a world that is riddled and ravaged with brokenness. Because we've been forgiven and because we've been renewed inwardly, the spirit of Jesus now calls us as agents of renewal to bring the hope of the kingdom to the broken world around us. Providing hope of a better kingdom to come is the responsibility of the church as we obey and manifest this heavenly kingdom on earth now and until he returns. Now and until he returns. This is the call of the church in every age. This was as real for these first century readers in ancient Asia Minor as it is for you and I in modern Western San Diegans. The Apostle Paul referred to this calling of the church when he claimed that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Say that word with me, ambassadors. He says, we do this as though God were making his appeal through us. That God is actually appealing to the world through his church. For us as a part of new humanity, we experience the reality of the kingdom concretely happening in our hearts and in our communities as we obey and are transformed. This is what we as ambassadors represent to the broken world around us. And listen, I was just thinking about this this morning. I feel like many in the church Many, and this is just my anecdotal experience, again, as a pastor and as a Bible college professor. Many in the church are so concerned with being advocates for a certain political ideology that they are failing to be ambassadors of a king. We cannot be ambassadors of a coming kingdom if we are just concerned with being an advocate of a certain political ideology where we see the other side as the problem. 
problem is not people. Paul says this in Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, sinister darkness and power. Ambassadors is what the apostle Paul calls us to do. And until Jesus returns, this is accomplished through the church becoming the embodiment of the kingdom of God in the world that we find ourselves in. The church, including ours, right here in San Diego, is called to live as if Jesus already reigns, even though he has not yet physically established his kingdom upon this earth. This means, listen, this means, let me get your eyes real quick. This means that we are political, but it's a kingdom politic that we abide by, not a partisan one. This means that we are activists, but it's according to the king's activities instead of the activities of a particular ideology. This means that we are tearing down systems of oppression, but it's through self-sacrificial love, gentleness, and giving, not through violence, power grabbing, and further oppression. Listen, we reject the idea that the kingdom of America can do for the world what only the kingdom of God truly can. And this is something that we have to have in our minds on this weekend as we step into the holiday here in a couple of days. It's a great country. I'm thankful to live here. But the reality is, is the hope for the world is not America. The hope for the world is Jesus. We are called to serve as ambassadors of this kingdom reality. And the means by which we follow this is what John steps to next. Look at verse 20 with me. Verse John 2, 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. And he concludes the passage in verse 27. He says, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. An anointing from the Holy One. Lean into this anointing is what John calls this church to do. For St. John, the only way that the church can live faithfully in the tension of the already and the not yet is to lean into and to realize the anointing of the Spirit. Right? We, we recognize the deception to place our hope in false messiahs. We remember our place in the story, the already and the not yet, and we lean into and we realize the anointing of the Spirit of God. If you haven't figured it out, I'm a Bible guy. I love the Scriptures. I love the story of the scriptures. I love seeing what God is doing, not just in my life and not in the life of my community, but in the life globally, right? Cosmically, what God's up to. And this, is, this baffles me. I love this part of the story because one of the most beautiful aspects of the biblical story is that the elusive kingdom ethic of God that ancient Israel was given in the law and failed to live up to because of their disobedience and covenant disloyalty has actually become a tangible and tactile reality that you and I are benefit, benefactors of because of the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Jesus embodied this kingdom ethic perfectly. And he carried out God's will exactly as it is in heaven. He embodied this kingdom ethic. And upon his ascension into, the book of, uh, into heaven, the book of Acts tells of the story on the day of Pentecost where 120 believers were together and the spirit of God was poured out upon them. This is the, the birthday of the church that we just celebrated just a few months ago. And Jesus' physical body, now in heaven alongside his father, 
is still present with the church through the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Centuries before this moment, on the day of Pentecost, the prophet Ezekiel actually spoke about what would happen when God's Spirit was placed within his people. Listen to what Ezekiel says. And I will put my spirit in you and move you. Look at your neighbor and say, move you. You gotta like, ooh, it, okay? Move you. To follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Ezekiel is prophesying? Yahweh told those in Israel who were being carried off because of covenant unfaithfulness and disloyalty to Yahweh into the land of Babylon. Yahweh's saying, hey, one day my people are going to be given the spirit and it is going to move them into obedience. The idea here is animation. This is what the spirit does with us. He empowers and guides his people to transform them into the type of people who truly embrace Jesus as their king and truly embody the lifestyle of his kingdom. Listen, this is what Jesus did for me 12 years ago. He took a rebellious, dishonest, manipulative, selfish, drug addict hippie. I mean, I had long red dreads. I had like beads and feathers in my hair. It was a snowboarder. We all thought we were gangsters. It was like 4XL tall tees, but it was tie-dye. You know what I mean? Like, like, like th- this was my reality. And after eight months in rehab and a heck of a lot of Jesus, my life has been radically changed. This is what he does in a heart that is willing to be obedient, is he animates it into further obedience and conformity to the ethic of the kingdom, to the way of Jesus. He forgave me. And through his indwelling spirit, he has animated me into obedience. John is calling this ancient church, and again, by extension, us as followers of Jesus in modern-day San Diego, to lean into this same power and this same animating presence of the Spirit of God, to be a people radically changed by the presence of the Spirit of God. We are meant to be a people who realize and am and and truly embody this kingdom ethic. There's one more step in John's mind, one more step. For him, it's not enough simply just to tell this church, hey, lean into the anointing. In fact, John really presents a clear picture of what this is gonna look like for the church. His call, number four, was to remain, right? We've talked about recognizing, remembering, realizing, and number four, remain. Will you say that one with me? You can say the whole thing. Remain in God. For John, realizing the anointing of the Spirit is directly tied to remaining in God. This idea of remaining really seems to actually be one of John's main points for his readers. He repeats this word. Maybe in your Bible, it's dwell. Maybe in your Bible, it's abide, right? In the NIV, it's remain. It's all the same word in Greek. And this Greek word appears five different times. And this language evokes Jesus' vine and branch metaphor from John chapter 15 where the same word is used multiple times to picture the disciples as branches remaining, abiding, dwelling in Jesus, the vine. If you've been at Neighbors for any amount of time, much talk about spiritual disciplines like silence and solitude, Sabbath, different forms of prayer and scripture reading have been talked about from this pulpit a lot. And that's intentional. It's not because we don't have anything else to talk about. It's because it is intentional. It is foundational for who we are as a community of apprentices to the way of Jesus. 
The reason these things are so prominent in the teaching and the life of this church is they are practices by which our hearts and our souls and our minds and our bodies are led into remaining, abiding, and dwelling in Jesus the vine as a branch. The Spirit's anointing is not given because we pray or because we read scripture or because we practice Sabbath. These practices are not things that we do to earn God's favor or conjure up his divine power. They are really vehicles by which we are further united to Christ and through which his presence then and his grace become realized more and more in us. It is us as branches tapping into the life-giving power of the vine. Remaining in God is what spurs on discipleship. It's how formation takes place. It's what John's talking about here. Five times in this text, he talks about remaining. This is how the kingdom of God is manifested on earth through his church. It is how we step further and further into faithfulness in the already and the not yet. But one last thing before we conclude. We said that John calls his readers to remain in God. And I'd like to add an addendum to this. Will you give me permission to do this? I want to add an addendum, because according to the text, we actually remain in God by remaining in one another. Apparently for John, remaining in God is not simply an individual thing. In his mind, he sees this taking place as the church remains with one another. He claims in verse 19 that the way in which the church is going to recognize and identify these heretical deceivers is by the simple fact that they did not remain as a part of the church community. They did not remain. That is the key. This is then coupled with verse 24, where John tells the readers, remain in the Son and in the Father. Verse 27, to remain in him. For John, this is all wrapped up in the same thought. Listen, believers remain in God as they remain with one another. They abide in the vine by abiding in the community of branches. We live in a time of rampant and ubiquitous individualism, do we not? Everything about our culture, everything about the media we consume, Everything that the phone puts in front of us is about me, myself, and I, my wants, my desires, and the way that I can express my individualism and be satisfied in a flourishing human. The reality, though, is that even though this has infiltrated much of the church, is the reality is that this, this whole me and Jesus, like sentimentality, is only minimally represented in the New Testament. It's there, but it's very minimally represented. Listen, God loves you. Here today in church, just hear that. God loves you. He loves me. He loves us as individuals. He has died for and he has saved each of us who have confessed faith and followed Jesus into the waters of baptism. He has saved us as individuals. He is concerned with individuals. But the overwhelming majority of the time, the New Testament authors were writing to and addressing whole communities rather than individuals. You see, in, in, in English, we don't really get this. right? When we read you in English, it's so easy to think, me, he's talking to me. right? Unless you're from Texas, then you say y'all, right? But this plural idea of y'all is normally what the New Testament authors are writing, and it's y'all plural, not you singular. 
listen to me today. Christianity is personal, but it is not private. Following Jesus is individual is an individual thing, but it does not happen independent from the community. The simple fact is that we need one another. This is John's vision that he's calling this church to. Listen, a single life that is transformed by the power and the presence of Jesus is so powerful, especially in a day and age when you cannot argue with somebody's story, when you cannot argue with the live your truth mentality. A lot of people talk about how that's such a dangerous thing for the church. I actually think it's a beautiful thing for the church because this is what Jesus has done in my life and you can't argue with it. It's beautiful. A life that has been transformed by the power and presence of Jesus is powerful. But listen, a community that embodies and reflects the kingdom ethic that Jesus will one day bring is unstoppable. This is what John is calling his readers to. He presents these words to an ancient church in the throes of fighting to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of pluralism and spiritual evil and rampant injustice. He calls them to realize the temptation to place hope in false messiahs. He calls them to remember their place in God's story and to embrace the role that they play in this already and not yet, a time where Jesus is already king, but he has not yet established his kingdom upon the earth. He calls them to realize the anointing of the Spirit of God who animates them and empowers them into obedience. And he tells them to remain in God as a branch remains in the vine. But he does so with eyes to the community and he connects their abiding in God to their abiding in one another. Listen, this is the charge from the Apostle John to this first century faith community in Asia Minor. And I pray it becomes the reality that ours experiences here today in modern day San Diego, where we're seeking to follow our crucified King to see God's will done here in San Diego as it is in heaven. May we recognize, remember, realize, and remain. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We pray for us. Lord, here today we are so thankful for the scriptures. We're so thankful for this letter, this epistle that was written by one of your best earthly friends who spent time with you and learned from you, even leaned against you at the dinner table at the Last Supper. And we can see wisdom coming from John written to this ancient faith community in a whole different part of the world, written in a very different language than what we, what we speak and read, but it's through the, the, the gift and the anointing of the Spirit that this has been given down to us through generations through the church, that we today can sit here and see a message for our lives, God. I pray, Lord, here today that we would willingly confess sin, maybe, maybe confess wrong ideas about you, that we've maybe placed our hope in the wrong thing. Lord, if, if, if confession and repentance is what needs to take place today, I pray that you would do that in our hearts and our minds as individuals and collectively within this community. And Lord, I pray that we would take seriously the call to be your ambassadors here in this world, to represent this kingdom that is coming. And Lord, we just lean into and we ask, we beg, we plead for the
anointing of the Spirit of God to become more and more realized in our hearts and in our lives, again, individually, but Lord, also corporately together. And God, may we remain in you as a community of branches plugged into the vine. God, we thank you that you have made this available to us. God, we willingly step into this and say yes. God, we believe wholeheartedly, God, that you want to use Neighbors Church in the city of San Diego. And Lord, every other church of every other faith tradition that, that holds to the orthodox confession that Jesus is the Messiah. God, we, we pray that your people together in this city would be a massive, massive move of just being ambassadors for the kingdom of God. We pray for this city. We're thankful, Lord, to be a part of what you are doing here. And we commit ourselves to you in the mighty name of our crucified, risen, ascended, and soon returning King. Amen.